The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Imagine, uh, imagine your last breath. You might take it in a hospital bed. You might take it in your own home. <clears throat> last thought that goes through your mind. That song, that's all about that, isn't it? Give me Jesus. Last breath, last thought. The only thing that's going to matter is your relationship with Jesus. One of the things that I love doing about expounding on the Bible is that we get to see the unity of Scripture, and that's one of the things that I'm especially grateful for in the book of Genesis. We've been seeing the unity of the Scriptures from Genesis to to Revelation. And if you have your Bibles now or a device with a Scripture on it, would you turn to the book of Genesis right now, and we're going to look at another portion of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 5. Would you take your Bible, Genesis chapter 5, and um, if you are able to stand with me, would you do that now, and I'll read to us. Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 1, and it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. And he died. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Well, I'm not sure if um, you have um, ever done much with your family tree. (laughs) But I find that fascinating, and I want to do a lot more research on my family tree. And uh, especially now, Ancestry.com, and with the discovery of DNA research, I mean, People are just having a heyday with finding out their roots. And I've never done the DNA thing or Ancestry.com, but, but I had this wonderful experience about a year ago when a woman from our church came up to me and she says, we're related. <laughs> and uh, so sure enough, I, I was delighted. Uh, and, I, and she gave me the book that I actually had a copy of, but I didn't realize we were related. And it's Cheryl Waldner. Where is Cheryl? There's Cheryl right there. So, so, so here's the deal. Cheryl's, oh, sorry, let's go to my great-grandmother, whose name was Elizabeth Souk, okay, is the sister of Cheryl's great-great-grandmother, I guess that means I'm older, <laughs> whose name was Augusta, and she's from the Souk family as well. And we just traced that down. And, and the reason that Cheryl found out about it was because there's a picture of Pat and I in that book from when we were first married. And uh, so that's cool. So now I always call Cheryl cousin. And, uh, you know, this morning as we study Genesis 4, 5, and 6, we're going to be looking at, it's going to feel like doing your family tree, but we're going to go way back, Okay. And it's going to feel like walking through a cemetery or reading the obituaries. It's going to feel like you're in a cemetery reading on, uh, epitaphs on the tombstones of the, of the deceased. And, 
I was online this past week and I found some very interesting uh, epitaphs on tombstones. I like this one. It says, for rent, very small, one bedroom, neighbors are dead quiet. That's a pretty creative thing to put on your tombstone, I thought. Here's another one. He loved bacon. Oh, and his wife and kids, too, it says. Um, this one I like. Died from not forwarding that text message to 10 people. <laughs> I always resist doing that. I don't care if I die. I'm not going to do that. Uh, guilt thing. Here's one that uh, some mother didn't want her family recipe to be lost, so she put it on her tombstone. Mom's Christmas cookies. And then one of my favorites is this one. I told you I was sick. <laughs> Something tells me that this is written by a man who, who had what women like to call the man flu. He died. So, well, we're going to be looking at uh, the lineage of Adam all the way to Noah this morning. It's a very big undertaking, I know. Pardon the, pardon the pun. Some of you missed that. <laughs> You're going to have to stay with me this morning. You're either going to fall asleep or... Uh... So from Adam to Noah. Of course, of course uh, death is something not to laugh about, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's incredibly sad. We grieve. Death. We were not created originally in the Garden of Eden, to die. Death is an intrusion. That's why last week when we were talking, we talked about the life of Jesus. His whole ministry was demonstrating this reversal of all that the curse of sin had brought into humanity. Jesus brings life. Sin brings death. And so this morning we're going to be studying how it is that we got from Adam to Noah and one of the things that we're going to see in the midst of this is two things, actually. Number one, we're going to see that there is a downward slide from, from Adam to Noah, a downward slide of people becoming more sinful with each passing generation. And then in the midst of that as well, we see that God, in His faithfulness, seems to be able to preserve a righteous remnant, a people that by faith, always in the midst of sin, resist that downward slide and seek to follow and obey God. We're going to see that in the, in the lineage of Adam. And so we're going to see the degeneration as well as the generations. We're going to see the degeneration that comes from humanity. And so there's three big points that I want to make tonight, to this morning. The generations of Adam through Cain the generations of Adam through Seth, and the de degeneration of all of humanity through sin. So the question is, why? You might be asking that. Why, why does it matter? Why should we care about the generations from Adam to Noah? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. We're going to actually, hopefully, give you some answers this morning. And so stay with me, and I will try to go quickly through some of the very high spots and the important parts. First of all, I want you to know that when we study the lineage of Adam to Noah in the book of Genesis, that we see many sons and daughters that are not mentioned. There are many in the lineage of Adam to, to Noah that are not mentioned. It mentions the high spots. And in fact, 
There are only three sons of Adam that are mentioned by name because they are given prominence. And we know, you know their names, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Cain is the one that killed Abel, so Abel is no more. We're left with two sons, Cain and Seth. And it's those two lines that the writer is intentionally wanting you to know about because they have incredible significance. And we need to understand that their significance is not just for some historical ancestry.com purpose. It is for the sake of absolutely understanding New Testament theology that we understand the, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And so in the scriptures we find then that there is the line of Cain. Let's begin with that. It's in chapters 4, 17 to 26 that we find out the, the lineage of Adam through Cain is mentioned. And in this, we see uh, seven names that are mentioned. <clears throat> Adam, Cain, Enoch, Irad, Me Mehujael, Methushael, and La Lamech, or Lamech. Now, so that we don't get lost in the details, and so that we don't get confused by names, I want you to see some very important things. If you look at the line of Cain, and if you look at the line of Seth, you will notice by the color coordination of this PowerPoint, you'll notice that some of the names are very similar and could be confused, though they're completely different people. For example, notice that Cain is sometimes called Kenan, represented in the brown there. Enoch is an Enoch on Cain's side. There's an Enoch on Seth's side, but there's also an Enosh. Irad is very similar to Jared. Mehujael and Mahalel, Methusael and Methuselah, and Lamech is in both places, in both lineages of both Cain and of Seth. So that's really important to understand. In both Cain's and Seth's lineage, there are people that have the same names. Another important thing I want you to see is that, and we're going to talk about this in a little while, that in biblical numerology, the number seven is always of great significance. And so if you count from, from Adam seven generations through the line of Cain, you come to a man whose name is Lamech. And this is a very important person. Now before we look at him, I want to just talk about what we learned last week when we talked about Cain killing his brother Abel. What did we learn? We learned, first of all, that Cain gave an offering that was not acceptable to God though Abel's offering was. We talked about the fact that, that it's perhaps that he didn't give his first fruits, he gave his leftovers, but we certainly learned that he did not have the heart attitude of one who was really worshiping the Lord God. And so his, his offering was rejected. He got upset about that, and God warned him. He says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Of course you will be. And he said to him, Sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, and you must master it. God said that to Cain. Cain ignored God's warning, and instead, he became jealous. He became angry. He became sullen. He was moping around, and he decided finally that he would take revenge on his brother. He rose up, and he killed his brother Abel. It was premeditated murder. It says in the scriptures that he invited them to go out into the field with him, and there he killed him. We read in the scriptures as well that God judged Cain for this first taking of a human life. This was the first murder. And why was it so important? Well, because 
humans, as we've been studying, are created in the image and likeness of God. That is the sanctity of human life. Human life should never be played with. And so God judged Cain as a fugitive and as a wanderer. And Cain was eventually, chapter 7, or 4, I should say, sent away from the presence of the Lord. Now, you need to remember that. That's Cain's legacy. That's the line of Cain. So now, what do we know about the number seven? What is the significance? By the way, when we read about Cain, who eventually ends up in the land of Nod, we're not talking about some puff the magic dragon who lives by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Honolulu. We're talking about a real man who really lived. We're talking about a man who rebelled against God, who actually killed his only brother at the time, and who was judged by God and sent away from the presence of God. This is a serious historical event. And it is serious enough that the writer of Genesis places it here. Why is the number seven so significant? Why do we need to understand it if we're going to understand what Genesis is all about? Well, seven, you, you probably know already, significant, seven days of creation. The Revelation has seven churches that are introduced. We read in the scriptures that there are actually seven Jewish holidays in the Old Testament that are celebrated. The gospel records seven miracles that Jesus did on the seventh day, the Sabbath, and was persecuted by the Jews because of it. Jesus is asked by Peter, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, no, Jesus says, 70 times seven. And we could go on and on about the significance of seven that's listed over 700 times, by the way, in Scripture. But I'm going to turn to you and say, look at this little website called gotquestions.org because they can give you a more complete answer and it'll take less time Sunday morning. So one of the things I need you to know is that seven is this magical number of completeness. It's a number that sums up completeness. And so when we look from Adam in the seventh line to Lamech, we see that somehow Lamech is describing the completeness, the essence of the line of Cain. That's what we need to understand. And so what do we know about Lamech? Well, Lamech is a script in the scriptures we're told that he was the first polygamist. If you'll notice in verse 19 of chapter 4, everybody else takes one wife, Lamech takes two wives. This is not God's plan. It was never God's plan. Lamech takes two wives, and again, we start to see sin enter, polygamy enter the human race. We know also from verse 23 that he was a murderer, just like uh, Cain was. He took a man's life, and he actually kind of boasted about it to his two wives. And we also know that he was arrogant, he was unrepentant. There's nothing in the Scripture that ever suggests that Lamech was, was sorry for his sin. He actually boasts to him. If, he says if, if the, the, the wage of, of revenge against Cain is seven times, well, it's going to be way more for me, 70 times seven. He has no remorse. And so when we look at the life of Lamech, we see a person who was corrupted in the line of Cain, and indeed, <clears throat> Cain's line <clears throat> excuse me, is also the one who's mentioned who developed cities. Now, I don't know about you, but cities are wonderful, but in the Bible, many cities are often accused of being the place where sin, where sin multiplies. 
and we were going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah one day. The interesting thing about it is that the last city of Scripture that's ever mentioned is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that descends down, and it's adorned by the bride of Christ. You see, <clears throat> there's so much of the unity of Scripture that we need to see when we start to see initial themes developed in the book of Genesis. Cities is one of those. Let's, let's move on now. And let's talk about Seth and the, Seth, the line of Seth. In chapter 4, verse 25, we read that Eve says that God has replaced the son that was killed by Cain with, with the boy, the name Seth. They've named him Seth. Why did they name him Seth? His name means appointed. God has appointed for me another son to replace Seth. And uh, it begins this new book, and, and this scripture in chapter 5, verse 1, begins to show the line of Seth. And it's interesting because it, chapter 4 ends, and with Seth and his first son, Enosh, we read that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's not a coincidence. That is significant for the historian. He says of Cain, he was driven away from the presence of the Lord, he says of Seth and his line, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. These are big cues that the author is giving us that there's two major themes going on in the early part of Genesis. And so we read in the scriptures that in, in the life of Seth, God gives another child to replace Abel. And um, I want you to notice a few things about Seth's line. So if you look at the line of Seth, you'll see that there are not seven generations mentioned, but ten. We can see from Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. All the way to Noah. Ten generations. I want you to know that this is a selective genealogy with the key patriarchs listed. It is not meant to display all the generations. It is not meant for historical purpose, but more theological purposes. And so we must be careful. This is called telescoping, when a historian takes the genealogies and telescopes forward and lands on the key parts. That's what this is called. We see it, an example, in different places when the number 7 or the number 10. 10 is a significant number in Scripture too. We notice, for example, that when in Genesis 11, we'll see that there are 10 generations that describe Abraham's lineage. There was many more than 10, but there's 10 that are listed. In the case of David, in the book of Ruth, 10 generations are listed. There's many more that could be accounted for. In the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, there's 14 generations, multiples of 7 again, 14 generations from Adam to Abraham and from Abraham to David. Sorry, I'm getting that wrong. From Abraham to David and then from David to Jesus. 14 and 14. But there were many more because there was many more people that were born in those ages. Again, we read these genealogies more for the, the purpose of their theological significance. Notice also uh, the age of each of these when they died is listed up there. Methuselah being the, the eldest in the, in the Bible, 969 years. And we, we know that following the flood, after Noah's flood, that the ages are reduced. God designs that. He says it's going to be 120 years. It's interesting that Moses lives 120 years. Later on in the time of David, we read in Psalm 90 
that if, if a man's age will be, will be 70 years or 80 if he has the strength. This is all God's design. We could ask many questions about these things. Why is it that early in the, in the humanity that they lived so long? Was it to populate the earth more rapidly? We don't know. But the point is, these are questions that we have. Sometimes we're not given clear answers to. And so we see the ages of people. When we read about Enoch, you'll notice he's the seventh in line from Cain through Seth. He is the corresponding Lamech in the line of Cain. Here is the line of Seth. His name is Enoch. What do we know about Enoch? Well, it says in verse 24 of chapter 5, Enoch walked with God. And then it says, and he was no more. He was not. For God took him. That's an incredible passage. Huge significance. Enoch is the only of the patriarchs that never died. He never tasted death. God is speaking a message in the seventh from Cain through Seth. He's speaking a message and he's saying that if you'll follow my way, the way of faith, the way of Seth, and you don't need to taste death. Now, how do we know that's the interpretation? How do we know that he didn't die? Well, we go ahead into the New Testament, and we have a scripture in Hebrews chapter 11. And in that wonderful faith hall of fame that we call it, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch was a man who walked with God. The reminiscence there is taking us back to Adam and Eve when they walked with God. Remember that? In the Garden of Eden before they had sinned? This is not to suggest that, that Enoch didn't sin. He was a sinner, but he was one who was devout. He was one who pursued God. He walked with God. He, did, he lived a lifestyle that pursued God's agenda, not his own agenda. And the writer of Hebrews commends him in looking back. I heard a story once about a little girl who went to Sunday school and her mom and dad at lunchtime said, what was the study about this morning in Sunday school? And she said, we learned about Enoch. And mom and dad said, well, what did you learn about Enoch? Well, she said, Enoch walked with God. And she kind of went on with the story and made a little more up. And she said, in fact, Enoch walked with God every day. And every day they just seemed to walk more and more and more and more. And one day they walked so far, God said, Enoch, we've been walking so long together, I think we're closer to my house than yours. I'm going to take you home to be with me today. (laughs) I cannot verify that's a true story. But Enoch walked with God and he was no more. And I think God is stating something in that. He's saying... Follow my line. Follow me. Death is something I'm going to overcome. Now I want you to notice, this is really key, because all of you know the next verse I'm going to say. All of you know this next verse, which follows Hebrews 11.5. Because without faith, the kind of faith Enoch had, without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those seek him. I want you to know this morning 
that however close you are to God, however intimate your relationship with it is with God, you can be closer to God than you are. You can have a more intimate and incredibly close walk with God. You can have answered prayer. You can see God at work in every day of your life. It will require two things of you, two kinds of faith. Number one, from this verse, you're going to need to believe that God exists. You're going to need to believe that in this day, when you walk out of these doors, and tomorrow morning when you go to work, or when you put your clothes on tomorrow, you're going to have to believe God exists in this day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Having eyes and, and faith to believe, God is with me. God is here. And then secondly, the kind of faith you're going to need if you're going to have a closer walk with God, you're going to have to say, I'm going to seek him. Some translations say, seek him earnestly, diligently. You can have a walk with God that follows him afar off. You know he exists. You know he's with you. You believe what the Bible says. But you don't feel his presence. You don't see his answered prayer. You don't see the little miracles that he sends your way. Because you're following at a distance. You've got half faith, not full faith. Don't let that be said of you. You don't need to walk from a distance with God. You can walk with God like Enoch walked with God. You know, it's interesting that as we follow the line of Enoch further, we go to the 10th generation. Who's that? Noah. We're going to be talking about Noah next week. What do we learn about Noah? Noah was a righteous man who walked with God. <laughs> Noah was a righteous man. In the, in the midst of de deplorable, degenerate, downsliding sinfulness, a wicked generation that God had to judge, Noah was a righteous man. You and I are called to be these kind of people in our generation. And so, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so, let's move on now to the next big question. I remember when um, we started this series on Genesis back in, was it September? I forget. I had people asking me this question already. <laughs> Who are the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim? And I said, I don't know. We'll talk about it when we get there. Well, we're here, rats. <laughs> Thinking I could get someone else to preach this sermon, but... Yeah, no, let's talk about this. There, are, there are, is a very important chapter, 6 verse 2 and verse 4. You'll notice that it is mentioned that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were very attractive. And they intermarried with them and had offspring. And then it mentions that God's going to confine the years of humanity to 120 years. And then is mentioned this group, this creature called the Nephilim. Now I want you to know, I'm kind of showing my, tipping my hand here, cards to you, but I want you to know that that the, the word Nephilim is like the word baptize. It's a transliteration of a word. It's not, it's not a translated meaning. 
We don't say, yeah, we're going to, you, you, they were believed and then they were dipped or immersed in the Jordan River. Didn't, we, don't, we don't say that. We say they believed and they were baptized. Well, the word baptized, bautizo, is a Greek word that's translated. You take the Greek word and you just put it in the English sentence. Well, that's what we did here with Nephilim. You take the Hebrew word and you stick it in the English sentence, Nephilim. And then somebody, you'll notice in the bottom of your Bible, it says the footnote probably, giants, calls them giants. Again, we could, I can't get off on this, but that could be what they were, and it could not be what they were, because they're looking at when the people were exploring Canaan, and they said, oh, we seemed like grasshoppers in our, in our eyes, and, and they seemed so big. Well, that could be a going back, just reading it backwards. I'm already showing you where I'm going with this. There's three principal interpretations of the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim. One interpretation is that the sons of God, mentioned in verse 2, are the, are the men of the lineage of Seth, and the daughters of men are the women of the lineage of, of, of Cain. And this unholy union of the daughters of Cain and the sons of Seth, or of God, resulted in an unequally yoked group of children that were disobedient and rebellious, and um, God has to judge that race. And in this interpretation, the Nephilim has nothing to do with the offspring of this, this people. The Nephilim is something else that was on the earth at that time, as verse 4 says. A second interpretation of this is that the sons of God... This is a really kind of fantastic interpretation. And the sons of God were fallen angels that came down, took the human form of men, and mated or intermarried with women. And their offspring was what they call now in verse 4, the Nephilim, these giant people, a superior human strength race that God had to judge because they were a corrupted people. And the third interpretation of the sons of God is that it's nobles and aristocrats and kings who, who lusted after power and became well-known and, and very powerful, and they took whomever they wanted as their wives, and they promoted such a race of people that were corrupted that God had to judge them. Now, again, I'm not going to tell you uh, what to believe. You can go on gotquestions.org, and they can tell you more of those three views. They lean toward the fallen angels' view, I lean toward the ones of the Seth and the, and the Cain lineage view. I can't tell you why because I don't have time. But um, you can believe what you want. Because I think there's more important questions that we have to address in this scripture. <clears throat> and so I hope that's enough said on that. The thing that I find is important is that in this scripture there are, is presented two lines, two family trees. There is the line of Seth, and there is the line of Cain. And again, I'll remind you, in the line of Cain, it says they went out from the presence of the Lord. In the line of Seth, it says they began to call upon the Lord. They both have a Lamech in their history. The one who boasts of murder and polygamy, and the other one who becomes the father of Noah, the righteous one. And one... Sons of men, one, perhaps sons of God, people of faith. I think to me what, what matters here is that the scriptures give us the unity of all scriptures. The scriptures give us 
the beginning stages of the seed of faith that is traced throughout the entire Bible, through Seth and Noah and Abraham and David, all the way to Jesus. And that's why the New Testament accounts for it that way. And the thing that's amazing is that, that, that the one who comes in the line of Seth is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the righteous seed. And now all of humanity can come under the shade of Jesus Christ's family tree. And we can be, as it were, as Romans talks about, we can be grafted in. Though we are not by the bloodline of Jesus, we can be grafted in by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the incredible message that I believe we're meant to take home today. The Lord says in, in, in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness on earth was great and, it, and he regretted he'd made man and it grieved his heart, it says. It grieved him to his heart. You know, whenever sin shows itself, whether it's in my life or your life or in our city or our culture, it grieves the heart of God. And... Um, It's because we were created in the likeness of God. We were meant to be reflections of God. And when that reflection is damaged, God grieves. And when we damage that reflection in someone else because we, we criticize or we're angry and we criticize someone else, it hurts the heart of God when relationships are, are difficult. Major Ian Thomas, in his book called The Saving Life of Christ, <clears throat> He says this, he says, For the first time since Adam fell into sin, there was on earth a man as God intended man to be. I love that quote. Jesus Christ, when he came and walked the earth, he says there's, for the first time there was a man as God originally intended man to be. That's Jesus Christ. You and I cannot be the men or women that God intended us to be unless we come under the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Unless we are grafted into his tree. Unless we by faith take place in his shelter and are, are sheltered from the wrath of God, from the sin that must be judged. Then we can come into that power that will change the way we live and be transformed only one person could ever live the Christian life, and it's Jesus. And this morning, I want to say to you, if you have not taken the two steps of faith that Hebrews eleven six talks about, I would ask you to take them today. Right now, in the quietness of your own mind and heart, you could take the first step. You could say, God, I've never really given you any credence. I've never really believed in you, but today I'm saying... I know that you exist. That's the first step. Why don't you say that to God right now? Say, God, I know that you exist. I know you exist. And then the second step of faith, which, which you can take, is that other one that says, and that you will reward those who seek you. Now, I'm not just saying any kind of God, whatever God, Hindu God, Buddhist God, Muslim God, Hare Krishna God. No, I'm talking about the God that has been revealing himself to humanity from the time of the garden. It's been Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the line of Seth, 
the descendant of Enoch and Noah and all righteous, Jesus Christ, who alone is the only man that is the kind of man God intended man to be. We come under him and we are transformed from sinners to saints. That's the good news. So this morning, maybe some of you need to take that second step of faith. And for the first time this morning, you're going to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. We sang it at the beginning of our service. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that without him, I am in the line of Cain. I am going to be a sinner. I'm going to rebel. I'll never conquer my sin. But I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. He is my righteousness, and I will put my faith in him. And I will trust in him to make out of me what I could never make out of myself. You can pray that right now. You can receive Jesus Christ by faith. And you can be born of the Holy Spirit. And if you do that this morning, you're certainly welcomed by the Lord Jesus himself, the risen Christ, to come and to partake of this table. Because you see, on the table, we witness two elements the bread and the cup, the bread which represents the body of Jesus that was a sacrifice for sin, and the cup which represents the, the blood of Jesus because we needed a substitute. And this morning, if you take that step of faith to receive Jesus or if you already know that you're a Christian, and that you're trusting in Christ, then I want you to know this table is for you. Jesus Christ himself invites you to partake of the meal. And so I'm just going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to invite you to join us in, in partaking of the meal. Remember that when you have the tray passed, please pass it on the bread and the cup so that the next person can hold the tray and you can receive both elements. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible unity of your word, the scriptures. We thank you for offering us a way back into the garden that we were cast out of because of our sin, our rebellion. We thank you, Lord, that that way back in is through the door that is your son, Jesus Christ. He is the gate. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that you will bless each person this morning that believes that you exist and that you reward those who seek you the way you're sought to be sought. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body that hung on the cross and for your blood that was shed. Would you be glorified in our participation of this meal as we remember your death? In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, in Christ, this bread represents the body of our Savior on that cross, and the cup represents the blood that he shed. Eat and drink in remembrance of him, and be thankful. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll have a basket come around now to collect the cups, and then one following that to have a love offering for those in need. We'll wait upon you now for that.
Father, we are in those days. These are the days where you are building your kingdom. These are the days where you have placed the body of Christ where you want it to be so that we can serve you as you call us to serve you so that your name can be more and more known. And I pray, Lord, that you would be exalted in this time and through us as your people. And I pray, Lord, that more and more we would be intentional about seeking you because you do exist and we do declare that we believe in you. We do declare that we have our hope in you and that we have all of eternity to look forward to with you and that there will be one day, whether we are still on this earth to see it or not, where you come through the clouds and where you establish a whole new thing that we get to be a part of. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hope. I pray that you would give us perseverance. And I pray, Lord, that you would make your name exalted through White Ridge Baptist Church as you see fit for your glory and not ours. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.